dulcet tones of Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass means it's time for another white-hot edition of Fangraphs Audio. I am Fangraphs Audio host Carson Sestouli. While obviously all of the guests here at Fangraphs Audio are special, um, it's also true that some of them are more special than others, such as the case with today's guest. Today on the show we will enjoy Jesse Thorne. Jesse Thorne, in the event that you're not aware, is the host of Sounds of Young America, what we might call an NPR-like talk show, in which Jesse himself interviews comedians and thinkers. Mr. Thorne is also involved in Jordan Jesse Go, a comedy show with his friend Jordan Morse, and Judge John Hodgman, a program he does with John Hodgman, in which John Hodgman plays a real fake judge. You can also find Jesse at The Grid on IFC. That's Thursday, 7.45 p.m. Eastern and 4.45 p.m. Pacific. And finally, all of his projects are accessible through MaximumFun.org. In addition to all those projects, Jesse is a real live baseball nerd. And it was, in fact, his interview from April 2008 with Bill James that compelled me to ask Jesse to be on the show. And what follows, I asked Jesse about that interview, about his early correspondence with Rob Nyer, his relationship with his hometown San Francisco Giants, and his rather extensive knowledge of baseballing-related literature. Here's my interview with Jesse Thorne, right now, on Fangraphs Audio. Yes, if I've uh, done my job in the introduction to this particular interview, you know that the guest on today's show is Jesse Thorne, host of Sounds Young America and other places. Uh, Jesse got his start as a uh, uh, college student at uh, the University of California, Santa Cruz radio station, KZSE. Uh, from there, he's gone on to um, a bigger, if not always necessarily better, things. They're, they're all better. In fact, they're all the best, I think we can <laughs> sufficiently say. Uh, he now is uh, distributed uh, uh, by Public Radio International. He's the host of Still the Sounds of Young America, as well as Jordan Jesse Go with his friend Jordan Morse. He also um, works with Judge uh, with Judge John Hodgman, who's a totally real judge, in addition to being uh, an author of a number of books and appearing on The Daily Show. Um, he's in, and he has his finger in another pie, which is Max FunCon, uh, and a, a sort of a convention for people who want to have a maximum amount of fun. Uh, we might get to that later. He is Jesse Thorne. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing great, Carson. Thank you for having me on the show. Good. And I will say, uh, your voice is excellent. It, um, it sounds good. <laughs> it sounds just like on the uh, radio. It's, it's great. I have a show called The Sound of Young America, and I get a lot of one of the one of the sort of late motifs of um, my hate mail that I get is how can you have a show called The Sound of Young America when you're obviously 56 years old? <laughs> yeah. um, and I have to email those people back and say, no, I'm 29. Right, which is um, almost exactly half of uh, 56. <laughs> yeah. So and, you literally uh, twice your age. I wonder if that will continue. Yeah, no, it will. I think um, Bob Edwards right now is is probably 60, um, and he sounds like he's 179, so I'm sure it will continue. Well, in fact, exponentially, maybe, at that point. Uh, now, Jesse, yeah. because you are a real um, media personality, uh, you might go back and listen to this podcast and um, shirk at the audio quality until you sure. until you realize, and you, you as a radio fan will like this, um, we're actually currently recording on some of the original equipment used by Marconi. Um, in his, oh wow! His initial broadcast. So that's so. If the I, audio quality isn't perfect, that's why. 
we record uh, the television show that I host, The Grid, on IFC on Kinescope, so I can understand. <laughs> right. Well, you're you're obviously a buff. Uh, now, there's a, a number of things. There are about literally like a hundred questions I want to ask you, and uh, I figured uh, now I'm not an expert at this like you are, but uh, asking them in uh, machine gun uh, rapid succession may not be the most interesting for the listenership. Let's so let's start with the most pertinent one, uh, which is. You, uh, without knowing it necessarily, recently made a uh, trip for me uh, way better than it would have otherwise been. Uh, Over Thanksgiving break, I was taking a trip from uh, Madison, Wisconsin, where I reside, to an unspecified location in Michigan. Um, I listened to a number of episodes of Sounds of Young America, uh, all enjoyable. Uh, What sticks out and what creates the the pretense for for having you on a baseball show? Uh, is the is the interview you did with Bill James back in April 2008? Um, I will first compliment you and say it's excellent. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, and then I'll ask you a, an open-ended question, which what uh, which is um, uh, why Bill James? Now, for people who don't know you, you typically interview comedians, uh, thinkers. I know you had Stephen Johnson on, um, you know, uh, writer of a couple of interesting sort of uh, popular science type books. Uh, but for you. Uh, why Bill James? Because he sort of sticks out from your sort of cast of typical interviewees. I've managed to sneak in a couple of baseball shows uh, over the years. I mean, the, the theme of The Sound of Young America is things that are awesome. Sure. And I, I do feel like there's not enough sports on public radio. I I, I, care, I like sports, and I know that a lot of public radio listeners and uh, even public radio hosts and producers l- love sports. And... I don't think they get the treatment that they deserve on public radio, so I'm always happy when I can contribute a little something. That said, you know, my show is sort of an arts and culture show, so covering baseball is is often a little bit of a stretch. But um, I, I've done a few I've done a few baseball shows over the years. It's been a while since I've done one. That that Bill James was sort of an anomaly um, in recent years. But I've had um, I had Bill Spaceman Lee on the show one time. Um, Rob Nyer from uh, ESPN has been on the show. Friend of, um, of Fangraphs Audio, Rob Nyer. A, a, a class act. I, I used to email with him with him when I was in high school, um, which is dorky both because I was on the Internet back then. This would have been like 1997. Um, uh, and because I was just I was emailing were about uh, baseball account? nerds. Was stuff. that a Prodigy account that you were using? Uh, you're, we're looking at it. We're looking at Sirius, I believe, was the name of our ISP. We had a local ISP. Oh, um, high tech, yeah. But um, it was, but ba- I, I've always, I mean, I've always been a huge baseball fan, and I think people who listen to my comedy show, Jordan Jesse Go, it's sort of a running joke on the show that I'll talk about the 1989 San Francisco Giants, um, and uh, my co-host Jordan will talk about, you know, Street Fighter Two. Or something that he's really passionate about, and then we'll both complain about the other one talking about the thing that he likes. Right, right. So essentially, you were constantly reliving your childhood uh, on that particular show. Is that the idea? <laughs> that's that's one. That's something that. Well, frankly, I think a lot about the 1989 San Francisco Giants even now. <laughs> I think like an Atley Hammaker or a Scotty Gereltz has a disproportionate mind share for me. Um, and I know that Jordan thinks a lot about Street Fighter Two because he's always telling me about some Street Fighter 2 thing he did, or like Street Fighter 3, uh, which I think is from like 2001. I don't know. Um, okay, so well, so you've actually uh, sort of opened the door to, uh, to a number of different directions that we could go. Um, I guess one thing I'm curious about is uh, getting in the Wayback Machine. 
what were you curious about uh, discussing with Rob Nyer back in 1997 um, using, uh, I don't know, was it a wood-fired computer or you know, I mean, whatever I, technology you were using? What, what were you asking Rob Nyer? And what was because because Nyer um, was kind of doing something in 1997. If I'm not mistaken, he had, they had just kind of started the uh, ESPN website at that point. It was still on the Go Network, perhaps. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I mean. The, the whole, I mean, the whole idea of like a professional website about something was brand new at the time. And I think Rob was really, because he, he had worked as Bill James' assistant for a while. I think he was at the front of the idea that you could have something in the mainstream media that, that recognized that, um, sort of sabermetrics and, uh, wow. statistical analysis of baseball. Please excuse my dog. Um, was something that was, you know, worth considering in a real thing that sports fans, rather than people who bought baseball abstracts, might read. Um, I mean, I was, I joined Saber when I was in high school. That, um, is, that in fact is nerdy because I know uh, from firsthand uh, accounts that no one under fifty uh, is actually a member of Saber. I know that's actually one of the reasons I ended up quitting after a few years. But um, uh, I actually went to a few baseball. Uh, I went to a few saber conferences uh, when I was in high school with a good friend of mine. I mean, I had a I had a rotisserie baseball league when I was in middle school. Um, I went to this sort of weird progressive middle school, and me and my friends had a rotisserie baseball league, um, a full league. You know, it was a, a single league league with twelve teams in it, and um, and so you were you know, essentially was, at that point you were using like. The Sporting News or uh, uh, Baseball, uh, there was the USA Today publication that sort of been merged. Yeah, I took base. I, I had a subscription to Baseball Weekly at the time, and and running a rotisserie league then uh, involved uh, using a spreadsheet and typing in everyone's statistics whenever you wanted to uh, run the standings. That uh, that required some dedication then. I was dedicated. I didn't have anything better to do. I never did any homework. I didn't do any homework between, I would say, about sixth grade and s- sophomore year of college, maybe. Yeah. And so, um, and so I had a lot of free time, um, and I dedicated almost all of it <laughs> to reading books about baseball. Yeah, okay, so on that topic, and uh, I know that you wrote uh, sort of a, a touching post uh, on the, the Maximum Fun uh, website uh, back in July of 2008. It was a, I guess it was sort of a, uh, a, an, uh, a nod to uh, an obituary for is it, is it Jules, Jules Teigel? Am I saying that correctly? Teigel, yeah. Teigel, right. And um, not only will Teigel be known as the the, uh, the author of a, um, was it Baseball's Great Experiment, a book about Jackie Robinson? Yeah, uh, Biography of a wonderful book about Jackie Robinson. Right, but in fact, uh, apparently he was an instructor of yours. Yeah, when I was in high school, I went to School of the Arts in San Francisco, and uh, it, it was a great, great school, a small uh, public magnet school. And um, uh, among other benefits, at the time it was sort of nestled into the campus of San Francisco State University. So, um, Frankly, the academics at, at my high school weren't that hot, and 
So I would just take classes at San Francisco State. Um, it so happens that my, my father is a disabled veteran, so I get free tuition at state colleges in California. So um, I, uh, I got free tuition at, at state, and among the classes I took was a class called the History and Literature of Baseball, which uh, Jules was one of the professors of. Wow, that and, sounds amazing. Uh, yeah, and Jules was a really amazing guy. I mean, he was also, I had a good friend in, in middle school who was in that rotisserie league whose dad was in the first rotisserie league on the West Coast, and Jules was also in that league. Um, and it was a really wonderful experience. I mean, it was really great to, um, you know, we read, uh, you know, we read The Celebrant and The Natural, and we read, uh, history books, and, um, it was a really, it was a really great experience. Now, you, now you you do mention in that same post that you've read, and, and you mentioned here a couple, you've read hundreds of baseball books. I'm curious. Uh, I guess two things. Um, one requires more speculation than the other. Um, if you were to sort of name a, a couple of your favorites, you know, that are sort of important to you, um, that that would be excellent. But also, what about uh, baseball? And, and in fact, I was reading um, sort of more of an academic text today. Uh, brief history of American sports, in which uh, one of the authors, Warren Goldstein, mentions how baseball has been chronicled more thoroughly than any of the other sports easily. Uh, what about baseball do you think makes it particularly, uh, particularly, I, I guess, a um, an object for uh, for writing? There was this episode. There was this episode of the public radio show Selected Shorts um, that was all about baseball that I had on cassette as a kid. And um, it was hosted by Bart Giamatti and Roger Angel. And um, I don't remember which one of them said it, uh, but one of them I remember saying in this thing uh, that he said, it always occurred to me that intellectuals love baseball because it goes slowly enough that they can follow it. Um, I, you know, I don't know, I don't know exactly why it is. I mean, it's certainly, I think it's in, in part it's because it has, uh, deeper roots, uh, in the United States at least than, um, the other major sports. I mean, you're talking about something that has, that really came around, came to, emerged as the, as the sort of dominant cultural sport force, uh, at the beginning of the 20th century rather than the middle of the 20th century. Um, so there was already this long history of um, people writing about it and so forth. Um, and I think that, you know, it's a... Um, it's a... For geeky purposes, it's relatively easy to break apart um, and study. And for dramatic purposes i think that the fact that it has that sort of central conflict between the pitcher and the batter um and that there's there's always there's always these the core responsibility is always on the characters who are either hitting or pitching you know like there it's it's not something where you can always figure out who's who's important um and that makes it i think really suitable for for um, more literary, uh, it's a literary subject. Right. I mean, I guess you could say, like, if, if we also say um, boxing uh, is also been sort of, uh, I guess, uh, received greater attention um, as a literary, you know, as a sort of literary object. Uh, there is the idea of the, the the central conflict between two people, and, and you, you sort of isolated it there between the batter and the pitcher. Um, yeah. 
impressed. And I think, you know, boxing boxing is also another example of a sport that emerged as a really powerful cultural force around the turn of the century rather than uh, the middle of the 20th century when it had to compete with, um, you know, or uh, be supported by television. Right. Yeah, right. So, I, yeah, I, 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 it's probably we remember it as a literary sport because it existed before uh, we were we could watch it, I guess. Uh, yeah, I mean it's the it's the age of newspapers, right? So the the reason the reason Ring Lardner is so important I- in baseball is because that was how people got stories about baseball. Um, yeah, and he was also hilarious, apparently. Yeah, L-O- I'm told. Uh, LOL. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> now. Um, one thing that's uh, been important to you, you've mentioned them already, is the uh, is the San Francisco Giants. Um, I know that uh, in an interview, um, you're, you're on record as saying that, in fact, one of your sort of earliest radio idols is Hank Greenwald. Uh, I'd like to get to that in a second, but uh, you may or may not have noticed that the San Francisco Giants won the World Series this year. <laughs> I did notice that they won the World Series. <laughs> yeah. I I very nearly cried, and I'm not ashamed to say that. <laughs> no, no, yeah, yeah, no, you're allowed to do that. Uh, well, yeah, I guess, I mean, what was the experience like for you? Now, you said that you haven't, the last couple of years, you haven't followed baseball quite as closely. Um, I mean, what was the experience like maybe not having followed it and then having the team that was sort of, you know, has so many um, intimate ties to kind of your youth? Kind of surprisingly, I think, um, you know, step to the fore and, and win the series. To some extent, I mean, the story of my adulthood has been a series of kind of alienations from professional sport. I mean, it sort of started when I went to an arts high school and none of my friends liked sports. And then I went to UC Santa Cruz and none of my friends liked sports. And then I graduated from school and sort of went into the world of public radio and comedy where um, nobody likes sports. Relatively speaking, of course, there are certainly people who like sports. And, um, And I also haven't, I've never had cable as an adult and um, so particularly living here in Los Angeles um, I just can't follow sports the way I used to because if I wanted to watch Giants games on TV um, I would have to pay literally $200 a month for like the direct TV baseball pack which I'm not going to do it's not in the cards so you know there's that and then there's this other issue which is that you know San Francisco built a new stadium that opened when I was in high school and um, or maybe just when I just started college. And, um, you know, I felt very strongly about it at the time. My, my stepmother uh, worked as an electrician um, uh, building the stadium, and uh, I actually campaigned for the stadium. I, I made a speech before the Board of Supervisors in support of the stadium, and, and Larry Bear, the Giants uh, uh, vice president, gave me a special quad to candlestick for speaking in front of the Board of Supervisors. But what ended up happening is it sort of it sort of kicked going to a baseball game out of the possibility of my sort of casual pursuits. And so I ended up rarely going to Giants games even in college. And, and if I went to baseball games, it was with my friends who were largely A's fans. We'd go sit in the bleachers at A's games. Right, and there are plenty um, of seats available. Right, exactly, exactly. Um, one of my closest friends was, was an A's drummer. Um, they had. Dr- I don't know if they still have drummers in the outfield, um, but uh, he even f- was featured in a series of commercials for the A's at one point. Um, this would be in like the Miguel Tejada years, um, and so basically, I, I I had been to some extent alienated from baseball, 
Um, not because I was against it or anything, but just because it just wasn't a part of my life and it, and it was hard to get it involved in my life. And I sort of slowly over years sort of scaled back on how closely I was following things. And, um, you know, you don't get the local paper here. You don't get the box score. Other people aren't sports fans. And all of a sudden, you're just not following things very closely. And then this year was a really, I mean, it was a really amazing experience. I mean, I'm so used to, I think a lot of people can relate to the idea of, of being used to their team losing. Um, you know, there's like people in, people who live in Cleveland or, you know, even to some extent like a Chicago or, you know, most teams lose. And, um, and so it, it was, and, and the Giants, as you said, were a real surprise. So at every, at every turn, I was prepared for the worst and almost sort of expected the worst. And, you know, when, when the Giants made the playoffs, a, a good friend of mine recorded this cover of uh, Don't Stop Believin' uh, that had Giants-themed lyrics, which is particularly poignant for Giants fans because apparently Steve Perry is a big Giants fan and asked the Dodgers to stop using Don't Stop Believin' as one of their theme songs oh, at man. one point. That has layers, which is layers of meaning. Pre- pretty fantastic, right? Yeah. And... And um, and it became this huge viral sensation, and it was just so it was just such a wonderful thing. And I think I, I watched pretty much every playoff game um, during the playoffs, and um, followed very closely during the pennant race. And it was really it was really amazing. And uh, the you know the Giants had never hadn't won the World Series in my lifetime, and the sort of dominant Giants teams of my childhood were the 1989 team and and as you can imagine growing up in san francisco that's very caught up in both them having been swept by the a's which unfortunately is my dad's favorite team and and of course the trauma of uh being in in my case an eight-year-old and um uh being in this horrible earthquake where hundreds of people died um, so no so that was, memories really to be found. Yeah, well, there are of the season, you know. Like I, I still have a lot of love for Kevin Mitchell and Will Clark, but um, and Robbie Thompson. But uh, yeah, definitely not of the World Series. And then sort of like the, uh, I guess the ninety, ninety three Giants that won one hundred and three games and then ended up uh, losing to the Braves, who were sort of our most hated enemies besides the Dodgers at the time. So there are these really, and then many, many years of the sort of weird cultural forces of Barry Bonds dominating the Giants as a team. You know, um, I mean, I, I always, I always liked Barry Bonds, but um, and I always thought he he got a bum rap, although it turned out he was also cheating. So uh, I don't know how bum his rap was, but um, you know, there was always this sort of like it always, it always upset me these sort of casual Giants fans that were rich and could afford to go to the games and I couldn't and also they loved Barry Bonds when he hit a home run and then complained sort of borderline racistly about him at other times <laughs> and so um, you know it was like it's very fraught years for me and this was like oh wow this is just great I can just enjoy this I can just love it and then they won the World Series and I couldn't even believe it I, yeah. I only wish that I could have been home in San Francisco when they won the World Series, so I could have gone and like turned over a car or something. Uh, by yourself, I assume, because uh, from the sound of your voice, at least, uh, you're. I'm a very masculine guy. Yeah, yeah six seven, two seventy five. Do a lot of power lifting. Now, um, 
you mentioned sort of working in the arts. Uh, I'll have to relate to I, uh, I attended the um, the poetry uh, pro, uh, creative writing program at University of Massachusetts, um, and I was a, a big baseball fan uh, while I was there. And I found myself because I you know I do a lot of watching and listening to and reading about baseball uh, alone, but um, wanting to have friends, I would occasionally, uh, and I think this is what has sort of driven me towards sports writing. I would I would really attempt very uh, hard to make the game palatable for my friends who were less inclined to follow sport. Um, <laughs> and so I felt like I was using a lot of my energy to do this, and I think you know to some uh, degree I was successful. But I'm I'm curious a if this is a thing that you found yourself doing, you know, especially with the Giants being successful recently. And B, if you feel like maybe, uh, despite the fact that you know, as we've mentioned, baseball has been chronicled um, extensively and thoroughly, um, that maybe some of the voices that uh, are praising the game or describing the game, are, they're not really the same ones that are most interesting to the sort of ears that you and I have. Um, you know, they're they're not they're not maybe as sharp. It's more like the John Updikes. Uh, the David Halberstams um, and Roger Joe, who again, uh, smart guy, but it's a it's sort of these guys are all sort of um, praising the you know the the pace of the game and the uh, you know the gravity of the uh, pitcher uh, uh, the pitcher batter matchup or something. Whereas like I look at for example uh, the website Free Darko, um, which is you know sort of a, like a bizarre. Um, you know, like graduate student gone mad's ode to the to the game of basketball, and it's really appealing, and the prose is very sharp. Uh, so I wonder, a, if you found yourself trying to draw people in, and b, if you feel that maybe there's a, a dearth of uh, of this sort of literature that would make young people draw young people to the game. I'd love I'd love to see some stuff like that. I I'm also a fan of the Free Darko guys. I um I was never a huge NBA basketball fan, only a, only a casual fan. And um, of course, with the with the great uh, with the great legacy of uh, winning teams of the Golden State Warriors, you can imagine how that ended Although up. Although best uniforms in the league right now, I think you have to say. Oh, a very nice uniform, a yeah. very nice uniform. Yeah. But um, uh, and they to be fair, they had both Spud Webb and Minute Bowl at various points in my childhood. Um, but anyway, I, the Free Darko guys have been on the Sound of Young America. I think they're I think they're uh, great, and in fact, they have a, a new book about uh, basketball history that I just made. Uh, I get I, every week I pick like a thing that I really love on my television show to recommend, and um, uh, I picked it uh, just last week. Uh, but yeah, I'd love to see some stuff like that. I mean, I know that. Um, I still think that really, really great work is being done in the sort of statistical analysis world. And I'm not, I'm a few years behind on it at this point, but, you know, I, I was, <laughs> I actually bought a copy of the baseball prospectus, um, from the prospectus guys before they had a publisher. Um, that's how much of a baseball geek I am. Yeah, right, that is nerdy, just to, just to remind I, you. <laughs> I just bet it like Keith Law or somebody had posted something about it on rec.sport.baseball.fantasy or something like that. And I, I, I bought it directly from them. Um, but <laughs> it's very, very dorky. Yeah, that is. Yeah. Um, so I think there's I think there's a lot of cool stuff like that going on. I mean, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I wish there was, but, I you know, I still love it. Yeah. Um, so... We started off this uh, the interview t- discussing Bill James, and of course, you know, you interviewed him. Um, 
now one of the things that that Bill James uh, I think is sort of known for, and which I think is sort of uh, uh, sees as his main contribution uh, to baseball, if not to just you know thought in general, is that it's always sort of been his um, it's his ambition, his uh, you know sort of main main way of approaching the game is to ask questions and then attempt to answer them. Right? He's not dealing in speculation. He wants to ask a question. Uh, maybe a very small question, but then attempt to answer it. I'm curious, because your show is, um, while some might say it's an NPR-esque type show, and of course you, you do appear on PR, I know, um, it's not uh, It's not like a show I've heard before, right, the, the Sounds of Young America, in terms of the interview show. You get a lot of uh, very interesting people, and, and you get them to sort of place where, uh, you know, perhaps they're, they're, they're appearing on your show in order to discuss a current project, you know, but it's not like um, you know, like a five-minute spot on Letterman where they're like yucking it up uh, in support of the project and then they're gone. Uh, they're generally pretty thoughtful. I'm wondering, do you, do you sort of feel like, uh, you know, what questions have you asked of radio? Do you think? I mean, do you see this? Uh, you say like, oh, I wonder if this is possible, and then try it out, and then either it succeeds or fails. Is that is that your approach, or is it something different? You know, it's funny. I I think that I I can definitely relate to Bill James in a slightly different way, which is. I think that, I mean, I remember, I don't know how old you are, but I remember when Bill James was sort of, was still really an outlier in the world of uh, sports journalism, like a real, out, like people openly made fun of him. And, um, and, and I think people always thought of him, oh, he's sort of like king of the nerds, right? But I always thought that what was remarkable about Bill James was that Bill James wasn't even like he was not king of the nerds. <laughs> like Bill James remains, you know, uh, sort of uh, C C minus statistician. You know, his great contribution was not that he was so great with numbers. Uh, not that he's bad with numbers, but I mean, you know, there have been all these people that, you know, the guys at Baseball Prospectus like. Their free time in their free time, they're doing like weather projection models and right, stuff yeah, like that. Good. Like those are s- serious numbers, guys. And Bill James was never that. I think what Bill James' real contribution was, uh, what, what his real contribution was, his sense of. And I also don't think that Bill James, you know, Bill James isn't Roger Angel. Like he isn't, you know, he's not a New Yorker quality writer. Um, he's a he's a perfectly good writer. I I by no me again no by no means mean to insult him his his writing ability. But again, I don't think people are coming to him because they're moved by his prose. I think what was so great about Bill James was that he was warm and funny and interesting, um, and and he was looking at things from uh, from the perspective of a of sort of a human being. Um, a sort of curious, interested, really smart fan. Um, whereas the, previously, the only perspective on on sports had been from this kind of calcified newspaper writer uh, who'd been smoking cigars in the press box for forty years and owed every, you know, everyone owed him a favor and he owed everyone a favor. You know, like the ultimate insider's insider. And that certainly has its value, um, but it was a really exciting to see a new, different kind of thing, which is here's this fun guy who's just a fan who's really smart and really capable and is asking these cool questions, and sometimes the question is, who's the ugliest baseball player <laughs> in baseball? You know, like sometimes it's really, sometimes it's how valuable is a stolen base, and sometimes it's, you know, if you ha- can you quantify how ugly Steve Jeltz is? 
And, um, and and that part of it is something that I really try and do in The Sound of Young America. I, I really want to make something that... And also, I should say, and Bill James was never stupid, always intelligent, always... There's this thing in improv, play to the, play to the height of your intelligence. It was sort of the watchword of the great guru of improv, Del Close. And Bill James always played to the height of his intelligence, even when he was doing something really silly, like who's the ugliest baseball player. And that's something that I strive for in The Sound of Young America, to be, to always play to the height of my intelligence and uh, my audience's intelligence. Never assume that I need to pander to anyone, uh, but not lose that kind of warmth and humor and silliness that, um, that makes it like real people talking about a real thing. Right now, now on the on the sort of uh, I, I like this idea of, of sort of being at your smartest, always working to the height of your intelligence. Um, I, I do want to ask you uh, one question, um, and, and then I'll uh, I'll let you go about your your day um, in sunny Los Angeles. Um, wh- one curious thing that I've noted, and um, you know, you mentioned this the other day. I, I actually the other day I was listening to your interview with uh, Michael Showalter from the state and Stella, What Hot American Summer, etc. He, uh, he was doing stand-up at the time, and perhaps he's still involved in that project. Uh, Showalter actually studied semiotics at Brown, um, it, it, which seems bizarre until you stop and look at the fact that um, a lot of people who are involved in comedy um, currently seem to have um, kind of amazing resumes that are totally useless to them you know, in terms of uh, their their comedy, because uh, comedy is sort of like, uh, you know, a frontier land. Like, you know, you have to survive on your own, uh, you know, your own wits. But, uh, you know, because Showalter went to Brown. Uh, I think Mike Birbiglia went to Georgetown. Uh, Dimitri Martin, uh, uh, perhaps Georgetown. And then uh, definitely NYU Law School. Um, and there are some other examples. And obviously, brand name colleges aren't the only thing uh, to to suggest that someone's intelligent, but I'd like you to speculate. But I mean, I think what you're trying to get at is, yes, I am super smart because <laughs> I went to UC Santa Cruz. That's, yes, uh, that's the main point. But the secondary point, which I'll make now, is that comedians seem to be really smart in, in kind of an intimidating way. And I'm curious, is like, A, so far as you know, is this a new thing? Or has it always been that way? And then B, uh, what, it is, what is this sort of connection between uh, intelligence and... And comedy, do you think that um, they go hand in hand? Well, I think, I mean, I think it's possible to be a comedian and not be smart. Um, it's it's hard if you're a stand-up comedian, um, but I think it's possible. Uh, I think, you know, there are comics who, I, I don't know how smart, say, Chris Farley was, um, but he was obviously a very gifted comic. Um, so it exists, but I, I think you're right that Comedian, comedian is a pursuit for people who are um, people who sort of have excess intelligence, um, and some people take that excess intelligence and they. I mean, I had a friend named Hua in high school, and when we were in calculus class, and our, this is an arts high school, so our calculus class was like six people. Um, he would do his homework. Hua would do his homework, and then he'd say, "Hey, can I get some more problems to do?" Yeah. Um, Meanwhile, I would not do my homework and just make jokes at everyone's expense the whole time. Um, and I think that's a pretty... I mean, I interviewed this very funny comedian, Greg Fitzsimmons, and he just wrote a, a memoir called Dear Mrs. Fitzsimmons, and it was inspired by the fact that he was cleaning out his mother's stuff and uh, found just a box of letters uh, 
addressed to his mother that were just complaints about him in school. <laughs> and um, I think that, you know, I think that that's a perfectly, t- that's a very typical, um, that's a very typical thing for, for a comedian. It's these people who, um, these people who are, who have a lot going for, who are really bright, and either because they're not interested in school or just because they're so bright that they have a lot of leftover brain power even after they've done their school or whatever, they just pursue something to keep them entertained. I mean, I know that my own interest in, in comedy, and to some extent my interest in baseball as well, was really a function of just um, sort of not really knowing what to do with myself in class, you know? Like... I, I would just be bored in class and I would either be thinking of jokes or making jokes or I would be just reading a book about baseball. Well, they're, they're both or, pretty satisfying, right, for people who are curious. Um, and, I, and, I, and I would argue that school is not always a great place for people who are curious. Um, yeah, and I mean, I think if you think of somebody like, if you think of somebody, especially like Dimitri Martin, um, you know, Dimitri is a guy who uh, who pursues... He pursues comedy like it was a, a like an academic challenge or like a puzzle, you know. Like he's like the wheel shorts of comedy. Like he loves he loves the idea of of finding structures, you know, complex structures and making them into jokes. And um, you know, I don't think that's unusual. Whether it's that or even even it, or if it's you know Michael Showalter's comedy, which is often is semiotic about semiotics in the sense that. He, one of his, one of his, were one of Stella's signature jokes is to uh, use the wrong word for something. Uh, wait, this is the thing that made you laugh uncontrollably, I believe. Um, <laughs> wasn't there something about taking a nap or needing a? Sh- oh, in the worst way. Oh God, yeah. There's a there's a Stella short um, called David's cousin or something like that. Somebody's cousin, where um, where Michael Ian Black goes into the shower. They, they they're visiting David's cousin. And uh, Michael Ian Black goes into the shower and just starts putting stuff up his butt and stuff, and just being really awful in the shower without asking permission. And then he comes out and he just sort of stretches his arms out and he goes, "Oh, I needed that shower in the worst way." <laughs> I'm laughing at it like an asshole right now. There's another part in that same one where they put where Michael Showalter pours jelly on a photo album of pictures of uh, David and his cousin when they were kids and then he takes it to the dry cleaner and he says do you have any jelly remover jelly remover for photo albums um, not only is that funny but it's also the first time in the 52 episode history of Fangraphs Audio uh, that someone has used the term up his butt yeah so thanks <laughs> thanks um, listen before we make too much more history, uh, Jesse Thorne. Uh, I want to thank you very much uh, for, for being a part in the absurd experiment that is Fangraphs Audio, and I want to uh, offer you, uh, for myself, if not for every single person, uh, the, the thousands uh, who will listen to this, um, to keep doing uh, exactly what it is you're doing and more and more of it. Um, so oh, thank, thank you. Very you. Much That's for, very kind of you. Yeah, thank you very much for enjoying uh, for for enjoying us. Thank you for enjoying us. Uh, it's been great that you could do that. <laughs> It was a pleasure. Thank you. Cool. All right. Uh, thank you very much uh, once again for joining us uh, on Fangraphs Audio. You have been Jesse Thorne, and I have been Carson Sestouli, and this has been another white-hot edition of Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.